Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. The dark emerging trees from the new winter wood are lovelier than leaves, as cold is also good. The heart's necessities include the interlude of frost-constricted peace on which the sun can brood. The strong and caustic air that strikes us to the bone blows till we see again the weathered shape of home. No season of the soul strips clear the face of God, save cold and frozen wind upon the frozen sod. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I am so excited to welcome Viri Hewlett with me on the show to discuss a poet who you may have never heard of, but I hope you will go and investigate and enjoy as much as I have. So welcome to the show, Viri. It's lovely to have you. Thank you, Joy. It's so good to be on with you today. So um, today we're going to be discussing the poetry of Jane Tyson Clement, correct? Mm-hmm. And this is a book that you put together, but before um, that you were the editor of, but before I get into that, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and perhaps how we came into connection? I think we came into ne- connection because um, I'd written something on whimsy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm very thankful for the internet. Sometimes I'm not, but sometimes I am. And I had done a podcast last year on the wisdom of whimsy. And through that, got in contact with Plow, which is a wonderful publication that you should all um, discover and enjoy, and uh, wrote an article for that. And then I think you emailed me about this project specifically, right? Yes, I think so. I'd been following Joy's work for a while, her podcast, of course, and her Twitter and her blog. And as we were completing this project, I thought, you know, Joy's someone who would really appreciate it, I think. So I... Told you about it and reached out and went from there. Yes, and I was just telling Viri that um, she sent it to me, and I know that there's a physical copy for me waiting at home, but she sent me a PDF copy. And I spent um, my kind of break hours in the month of May reading these this poetry and also the work around it that's in this book, uh, sitting in Christchurch Meadow with an iced mocha. And it was just kind of a a glorious, restful release for my soul. And so I grew to really enjoy and love this poetry. And now we are sitting in New York mm-hmm. um, together. So what a world of, uh, what a whirlwind it has been. Uh, but I'm really excited to finally be able to sit down and talk about this book. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Why don't you tell everyone a bit about you and what you do here at The Plow and whatever you want to share about yourself. All right. Um, well, I'm an editor at Plow Publishing House. Um, we have a quarterly magazine, as well as books, as well as more regular online articles. So that keeps me very busy. I kind of have a finger in each of those um, corners of what we do. I'm, I'm a member of the Bruderhof community, which is an intentional Christian communal movement. We're almost 100 years old, and publishing has always been very central to our mission. And I've been working on the words and life story of Jane Tyson Clement for about three years now. Um, and we'll tell you more about that in a minute. 
So could you tell us a bit more about the vision of Plow? Because I came upon Plow actually a few years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, it's such a rich resource that of, we were talking about this before, but of important weighty things that mm-hmm. need to be talked about, but also in beautiful prose and from kind of personal perspectives. Mm. So what would you say is kind of the the vision of Plow and what do you all spend your time doing? Right. Well, I think our, our main vision is grappling with, as a publishing house, grappling with how people are struggling with what gives their life meaning and also how do we live and think and work together. Because we're based in a community, what we have in common is always incredibly important to us. And I think part of that is you know, our literary and cultural heritage. Mm. So Plow is constantly writing about, you know, current discussions and debates, but also constantly reaching back into the past and, and bringing forth, you know, old books that are out of print or, mm. you know, wonderful, important thinkers who have kind of been forgotten or are getting dusty and, you know, dusting them off and bringing them forth to contemporary readers. I love that. And it reminds me of one of my favorite books is... Um, Life is a Miracle by Wendell Berry. Have you ever mm-hmm. read it? Yes. Okay. And I love where he talks in the opening section about how education has been overtaken with innovation and that we only right. need to be coming up with something new. But the role of the educator is to is really to carry on tradition mm. and to develop wise minds that then can work and live well in light of the received wisdom that we all have. Yeah, it's and beautiful. I, and I feel like in some ways Plow is kind of endeavoring to do that. Mm-hmm. It's endeavoring to address modern issues, really human issues in the modern age. Mm. Um, both with a kind of clear and prophetic voice, and you all grab from many directions, but also taking into account that living tradition that we we live in of wisdom and of the Christian tradition, really. So consider that my hearty endorsement of reading Plow. You all just did a very fascinating, I'm sure this will come up months later, but you just did a very fascinating issue on capitalism and business. and Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you have any small things to say about that? Yeah, I think... I mean, capitalism is obviously kind of a hot topic. Socialism, you know, everyone's talking about Bernie Sanders. But I think Plow's message was, you know, yes, greed is terrible. Yes, the injustices of the world around us are, you know, horrific. We have an essay in there on um, Nike sweatshops Mm. um, and other, you know, people who've kind of been left behind by the economy in this country. But what's really striking is the way our economic systems kind of form our souls and form the ways we Mm. think about ourselves and each other and the way we're even able to understand ourselves. Mm. So we talk a lot about beyond capitalism, not as in, you know, at a historical date, yeah, behind, beyond capitalism, but, you know, transcending it um, and, and finding who we are, you know, outside of that, that way that we were far too accustomed more essentially as human beings. And that's a a great example to me of taking on a very difficult topic head on and trying to explore. And it's something that we need to talk about and, and enter into with wisdom and um, with the wisdom of our forebears rather than kind of just with our easily activated emotional buttons of how we think we should approach it. So let's dive into talking about this, this project in particular, kind of give me a description of of what this project is and and then also how you came to it because it's kind of doing many things really yes, yes it is so tell us a bit about it this project is a book um, it's called the heart's necessities life and poetry and it really is doing many things because for one it's the poetry of jane tyson clement arranged chronologically as she wrote it throughout her life and then there's brief biographical sections written by me 
on, you know, what she was going through in the, the various chapters of her life. And then the sort of crowning glory is reflections by a current contemporary jazz folk fusion musician who discovered Jane's work and started writing songs using Jane's lyrics as her, or using Jane's poetry as her lyrics. And her name is Becca Stevens, and Becca's thoughts about, you know, what Jane's poetry means to her and how it's granted her solace or challenge or, you know, creative spark when she was feeling kind of dry and at a loss um, are really, really beautiful. And I think open a poet who, you know, lived in the last century and passed away in the year 2000 kind of opens up her words again mm -hmm. to, you know, young people, people my age today. To a new generation. Right. So tell us a bit about Jane Tyson Clement herself. Mm -hmm. Who was she and what did she care about and why did she write? Right. I mean, I think those were things she was herself grappling with her entire mm -hmm. life. And I think that's what a lot of her poetry comes out of. The basic facts were she grew up in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Her father worked at Columbia University. So that was kind of her, her world. She went to Smith College, started teaching school. And at that point was when the Second World War broke out. And through her entire childhood, she was very concerned about injustice. She lived a kind of prosperous middle-class life. And yet, you know, in the streets of New York, she saw, you know, homeless people, beggars, veterans from the First World War. And through that, she developed very strong pacifist convictions, um, very strong convictions about justice. And she was very bothered by the way the institutional church often kind of ignored these kind of realities that Jesus himself mm. speaks about so strongly. So she kind of felt homeless as a young person in the traditions granted her. She found Quakerism, which meant a lot to her, and then eventually found the Bruderhof, which is the community I'm a part of, um, and that's where she stayed for the rest of her life. But I think struggling through questions of doubt and faith and identity and what role her poetry had mm. in all of that is sort of the, the wellspring of, of her creativity. Mm. I Reading this, something that struck me about the poetry, and I wanted to ask you about this mm. actually, was how much... Well, there's, there's several things. So for one thing, it was just very vivid and personal, and it always feels like it is a wrestling through or trying to clear away or attempt to gain clarity. But something else that struck me is that almost all of the poems feel as though they are written to someone. Hmm. Not always the same person, and sometimes it is clear to whom it is written. Right. Um, but there's always this sense of there being an audience or someone that mm. it is being written to, which I think for me, when I read it, made it feel, it. some of them felt very clearly like they were written to me. I felt mm. like I was being addressed. It had that effect that some authors can have, and, it's, and I, I was curious if it did for you, which is the kind of feeling of reading someone and feeling like you've discovered a friend mm. or a companion or someone who has kind of... One of my friends calls it book provenance. Who, right at the moment when I you, that. I do too. Right at the moment when you needed it, they, they, their voice kind of seemed to speak not in general or vaguely, but to you. And then it's so interesting too to see that. I wonder if part of that is why it it made so much sense for Becca to uh, integrate that into her music. Mm. So I was curious for you, like, when did you discover her her writing? Um, and, and then did it feel kind of like that sense of being addressed or discovering someone that was a companion or a friend? Yeah. Well, I've, I've actually been familiar with her poetry my whole life. In 2000, shortly after she died, Pau Publishing, together with her family, published a book of her poetry. 
so I grew up with that, you know, kind of on the shelf, you know, in the corner of my eye. And she also wrote a lot of song lyrics for the community, hmm. um, you know, songs about nature or kind of hymns. And so I grew up kind of knowing the name Jane Tyson Clement, but then discovering and becoming more intimate with her, her more intimate and personal and sort of um, conflicted poems mm. was sort of an eye-opener that this, you know, Jane Clement, who was kind of a, just sort of a familiar person and someone who you don't, you don't consider their, their depth. And suddenly she was kind of coming out in, in full, full force and fully rounded as a person. And I think that was very striking. Yeah. Well, I think perhaps we should pause now and actually read some of her poetry. Good idea. So I picked out one, but how about, uh, shall we start with, there was one that you had picked out. So why don't we just go through and we'll read a few. Um, we'll read, I'll read one and you read one and then we can chat more about it as we go. But I think that actually reading out loud um, will give people a sense of the kind of immediacy yes. and pungency mm. of her writing. So you first. Okay. This poem, Into the Dark, she wrote just as she was completing a huge project, creative project um, in college. And she's kind of farewelling the characters in this project and farewelling, you know, the project itself. Into the Dark. Into the dark, which is not dark, but only the light we cannot see. Reluctantly, I let you go. What was your source, children of years? Surely I cannot claim your birth, for when I found you, even then, you were not strangers to the earth. I was the privileged to disclose briefly a portion of your days. Now you are free, but not complete. For none of us is this the end. Somewhere the valley holds the mist. The four fields shimmer in the haze. The man of patience and the child and the sea-eyed girl draw deep their breath and live and have no fear of death. Mm. That's so beautiful, and I love that it's this kind of the connection with finishing a project to the very feeling of like fear or thinking mm -hmm. about death. You know what I mean? That's, it's, yeah. it's very intimately connected. So you may be able to tell me this. I don't actually remember what the title of this was because I wrote it down. Okay. Uh, I wrote down the entire poem, but didn't write down the title. Um, but I, <laughs> which is a very me thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I found this one just, it felt very relatable. I don't like that word, but that is the word I think that okay. came to mind when I read it. Tell me it is enough to be as I am now, and young, and filled with the dark necessity of you, and with delight at the thin crying of a goal against sunlight and bright water. Tell me it is enough that more is not required of me, that I need not stain my hands with the world's blood, or choose which side to hate, or give up this drift of my heart, this joy, this insupportable joy at the goal's white cry, and your hand lifted to me. Tell me I must not deny my life for the world, for the world's hate and the world's anger. And that was written on July 24th, 1939. Hmm. So that would have been right at the cusp of, yeah. of World War II. Yes. And I think the reason I love this one so much was it is that feeling of being young and in the world and having a full chest of hope and of ways mm -hmm. that you want to live and feeling frustrated or the the injustice or just the unfairness almost like mm. a little child like it isn't fair that this is right. the world i've been given right uh, a world that asks me to dirty my hands mm. and, um with injustice and it seems like that was something she was reckoning with yeah especially a lot in in those years of her life yeah 
Well, I think she did have all these very passionate convictions and so many people in her life, you know, including her family and the, the people she was closest to were telling her, um, you're too idealistic, you know, that's ridiculous, you have to be a realist, this is mm. the world we're dealing with. Um, and she really couldn't stand that because to her, if something was right, it was right. And if it was wrong, it was wrong. And why should she be forced to kind of um, choose or or, mm -hmm. you know, compromise, compromise. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you must yeah. not be a compromising person, Vary, if you couldn't access that word. Oh, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, uh, it's kind of the, I feel like a lot of people in the 19th century resigned to, you know, they talk about the incommensurability of the good, you mm -hmm. know, that there are, there's this sense of, can we ever live truly moral lives? Because um, there are so many demands made of us. But I, it seems to me like her life had this value for the high cost of living mm. with integrity and with fidelity to mm. principles. And something else that comes out in the book that I really enjoyed, and we were chatting a bit about before, is kind of the that you wrote this in the timeline. You're, you included the poems in the timeline mm. of which they're written. And so you can really see kind of the arc of her wrestling with all these things right. you can see her wrestling with the idealism and then you also see this arc of her um falling in love mm. and that was one of my we were talking about this before there's this lovely little poem where she's um it felt so very human to me yeah. where she right after meeting the person who'd eventually become her husband right do you know where it is in the book because I she's think i can find it okay you can see if you can find it because it's it's basically describing her thinking that he's pausing to say hello to her in a library and then being like oh I guess he's not. Right here. <laughs> Do you want to read it? Or? Should I read it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was the simplest thing that made me see. You did not care a fig for me. No great denunciation and no thunder contrived to tear our hearts asunder. You entered, and I know you saw me there. By all the stars above, I swear, my heart was calling, so you must have heard. Beyond the door, a little bird scratched in the dust as you went out again. I felt no great momentous pain. I watched the door swing to and heard it latch and knew we two were not a match, and went back to my reading and forgot the things that were to be and now were not. <laughs> I just love it so much. It's such a... I'm, I'm sure that I have done that. Right, right. <laughs> just not have written such a, um articulate poem about it, but right. uh, it was just so human. And then to see that arc and then to see the poems when she actually, you mm -hmm. know is in relationship with him, which I guess is perhaps also an encouragement that sometimes you think the door closes and right. perhaps it did not. Right. So what was it like for you kind of getting to see the arc of the poetry in connection with her life? Right. Well, that was, I think, for me, the most exciting part of the project is that I'd grown up with No One Can Stem the Tide, which is this earlier book of her poetry, and it's arranged thematically. So the kind of chronological order of the poetry is scrambled. And to come back to it and be like, oh, she wrote this poem, you know, the first time she laid eyes on her, you know, future husband um, and kind of had this five minute crush on him in the library. Or, oh, this is she wrote this poem about frustration with what words can can't mm. do right when she was arguing with a friend who had been a pacifist together with her, but had lost that conviction. And she was struggling with the pain of um, not being able to convince her friend and especially you know, the arc of her relationship with her husband, she felt very strongly about him for about half a year um, before they even went out on their first date. Um, and even at that point, I think he just kind of saw her as a good friend and a nice girl. And it took several months before he kind of woke up to who she was. And what a woman she was. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, honest. And their love letters, which I've excerpted tiny bits of in the book, are just 
you know, marvelous because they they were struggling through these huge issues on what their lives held, what, what had meaning, um, what did faith mean, who was God, and then as, at the same time had this ridiculous sense of humor and were constantly teasing each other, and um, she was constantly sending him poems. Um, so it was, it was really beautiful to kind of see the kind of life and the, the moments behind these poems that in some cases I'd already been familiar with. Yeah, and to see the story behind it. Mm. I think, yeah, I just loved reading it and feeling like I got this peek into a good life. Do you mm. know what I mean? That was yeah. that was a bit of what it felt like to read these poems. And I was talking with a friend recently about, I'm famous for annoyingly being like, oh, can I tell you guys this poem? And friends put up with me, and I do. <laughs> but the reason that I love poetry is because there are moments where prose will not do, and where you need the appropriate words to say mm-hmm. things. And what I loved about reading her poetry was that so much of her life, it was just, it was simple. It was good. It was working through convictions. Mm -hmm. And she gives good words for those struggles and those doubts and those questions. Mm -hmm. And so reading this, in some ways I felt akin to her because I feel like I struggle with, not struggle with idealism. I I am idealistic and struggle to know what it looks like to, to live that out well and just reading it was the sense of being given words mm-hmm. that were appropriate to the weightiness of life. And then, of course, the interesting thing, too, is that we have this the crown, which is this music that right. comes out of it. And in some ways, it's so funny because it's the music is quite, if you think about her life and uh, who she was as a person, this kind of honesty and then simplicity and, you know, I probably wouldn't say if I were going to embody that in a musical form, Right. That it would be Becca's music. Right. Would you? You know what I mean? No, no. Um, so I was curious, what do you think? But I really enjoy the music um, mm-hmm. a lot. It's, is groovy the right word? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was curious, how do you think that these words finding new life in a new time, but with this very, you know, being put to this very particular kind of music, how do you think that adds or builds or sometimes maybe hides things about mm-hmm. the words? Well, I think... Just as someone reading a poem, they'll bring a different, you know, set of inflections to it mm-hmm. based on their interpretation. I think that's what Becca Stevens brings to the mm. the poems in her music. And Becca is, I think, a very brave person creatively because she knows what works commercially in the music world. And mm-hmm. she knows she's not doing that. And she knows she can do that. And yet she feels that her music has to be authentic and true to who she is and true to the lyrics. And so I think that was a a commonality between Becca and Jane that Hmm. if you look at their lives, you know, Jane was a, you know, a young woman in the 1930s. Then she was kind of a housewife with six or seven kids, Mm -hmm. I think, then joined a Christian community. Um, And then there's Becca, who's a, you know, a songwriter based in Brooklyn in 2019. You know, what could these two women possibly have to do with each other? And then when you probe down to the heart of the matter and to the heart of Becca's music, you know, they're actually very similar and I really enjoy Becca's music just Mm -hmm. because it's it's demanding in a way that the best poetry is that Mm. you can't just read it once and be like or listen to it once and be like okay got it you know there's a nice guitar hook and and you know that chord progression feels kind of familiar you have to listen to it a few times and it kind of slowly grows on you as the best classical music does um, and kind of makes sense and there's so many tiny details in there that Mm. the more you listen to it the kind of richer it is Mm. and the more intentional you realize it is yeah so that's wonderful. So everyone should give that a listen. And I think something that comes to me too as I'm thinking about this is that 
a similarity that they perhaps have and is why I think I like both the music and the poetry is that they both seem to be wrestling with how do you live a good life and love well in difficult times? Mm. And I think, uh, and in times that are demanding and ask, uh, ask you to uh, bloody your hands, as she mm. says in the poem that I liked so much. And so it is, they are good words and good music for entering into that space of trying to figure that out. Right. And yeah, I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. So I, I want to end today with a poem, but are there any final things you would want to say about Jane's legacy or why people should read the book or any things I've forgotten to ask you? Um, I mean, I think people should read the book because it's beautiful and we all need beautiful things. Mm. Um, someone just wrote to me about it and said, it's a very unfashionable book. And I was hmm. like, Oh, say more. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Thank um, you. Yeah, like, is that a compliment? And he was saying absolutely yes, because I think we're constantly, and this goes back to the sort of compromising we're asked to do, we're constantly trying to balance between what the world wants of us or what, you know, capital wants of us and what's true and what we really want. And I think Jane is just so obdurately, you know, who she was, writing out her life story and presenting her poetry you know it just it had such a life and a, mm -hmm. a power and a vibrancy of its own that you cannot change that mm -hmm. um and I think we need to spend more time with unfashionable mm. good true and beautiful things amen um, it just gives us depth and and also perspective on you know the constant kind of barrage of you know information and innovation that's constantly coming mm. at us yeah absolutely I completely agree. Well, Viri, thank you for coming on and chatting with me about these things. I do hope that all of you will go give this book a look, and I will put it in the show notes um, so yes. people can go and find a link to it. And I thought we would end today uh, with one final poem, which I think we have picked out. I think. I think. <laughs> yes, we have. Excellent. Uh, which I will let Viri read. And I hope you all will go and read this book and choose unfashionable things that that lead you into goodness and beauty and help you to be brave as you choose to live lives of integrity in a difficult world so Alrighty. here is a final poem this is response to criticism becca has put it to music so you should check out her song and i think jane's sense of humor also kind of comes out in this poem and it was actually someone criticizing responding to someone criticizing her life not even her her poetry, poetry, but it works, I think, in any setting. Response to criticism. Do it the way you will. I only know that it was right for me to do it so. Take any two hands and clench them tight. They will not grasp a rod with equal might, nor will they be alike when in repose. Two bushes never bear the selfsame rose. So leave me scope for some experiment in finding out just what the good Lord meant when he created in my patient mother this untried soul that's me and is no other. Hmm. Excellent words. I'll chat with you all soon.